The Abounding Joy of New Testament Hope. This is part nine. And uh, last week we started on the fruit, some of the fruit of biblical hope. We looked at what hope accomplishes in our lives. We looked at the sources of hope. And then we've started now looking at the fruit of hope in our lives. What does it produce? Last week was joy. And this week, the fruit of the hope being love. Text is Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love you have, the love you have for all the saints, and then because, so there's, there's the reason for the love, because of this. So very specifically, he says, we've seen your love. The love you have is because of the hope you have. So this morning, this text says what we want to say. Love is the fruit of biblical hope. The love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your, your, your love in the Spirit. That's an interesting phrase too, your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. It is never a small event when your church opens up your word, God's words on paper. Take them off the sheets of our Bible and carve them into our hearts with spiritual life and nourishment. That Jesus, you will be just increasingly glorified in in the joy that comes from our hope and today from the love that comes from our hope in you. In your name I pray, amen. The first fruit we looked at last Sunday was joy. Paul said that the Christian life is one of rejoicing in hope, Romans 12, 12. The unique thing about that joy is it isn't extinguished. There are sorrows, but that joy is not extinguished by earthly trials and difficulties, but is rather deepened by them. It's made, it's made more precious by the trials and tribulations of life. We, we appreciate, the way that works is we appreciate more the hope we have in Christ when other sources of hope are stripped from us in this world. As, as, as the other objects of our joy and hope diminish, and they do, the hope you have that Peter says is imperishable in Christ, it just becomes more vivid. It becomes more precious. It becomes more substantial. 
Our delights do nothing for us spiritually. It is usually our trials that drive us more deeply into the hope we have in Christ. So the counterfeits of hope serve to deepen the value of authentic hope that we have in Christ. And when counterfeits abound, the the gold standard is, is more necessary and more precious. So this week we're looking at the fruit of hope, love. And I think it's important to look at this fruit for a really good reason. Someone may say that this, this joy, last week, joy is the fruit of hope. Joy that's rooted in hope, that's nice, but, but it's, it's of no earthly good. I mean, people will get so wrapped up in this future that they have in another world, in the sweet by and by, that they'll have no interest in the pressing needs of this age. You've heard it. You Christians are so, finish it, so heavenly minded, no earthly good hear that all the time. So is that the way it works? We're just so joyous about, oh, I'm going to go to heaven and be with Jesus. But here we are here now. But that's not the life of the kingdom that's described in the New Testament. Hope that produces only joy could be escapism could have its head in the sand. It can turn people into dreamers rather than doers. So so today's teaching is intended to show from the scriptures that not only is this criticism not true, so heavenly minded you know earthly good, not only is that not true, but it is the exact opposite of the truth. So I'm not just saying it's untrue. I'm saying it gets it precisely backwards. It's not heavenly mindedness that keeps people from engaging properly in the world around them. It's earthly mindedness. It's earthly passions. It's earthly distractions. It's earthly materialism. It's earthly entertainment. It's earthly idolatry. That's what keeps people from engaging in the ultimate needs of this world. So I want to try and prove from today's text, today's message, is this. Heavenly hope produces a flow of not only joy, but self-giving love. Kingdom-minded, heavenly hope, here's how it works. Kingdom-minded, heavenly hope so secures our lives that we are free to risk everything in service to Christ fearlessly, in a way that no one else can. Earthly-mindedness produces selfishness, fear of failure, regret, despair, love of position, love of power, love of recognition, selfishness. So I repeat, it's not heavenly hope that binds the hands of love. It's earthly-mindedness that destroys the foundation of loving activity in this world. I have three points that I want to pull out of this text. One, these people in Colossae, Paul says, were marked by an outstanding measure of visible love. If you want to just pull it out of the text, it's in that fourth verse. 
we, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So as Paul sits and he writes these words in all likelihood from prison in Rome, Epaphras, fellow worker, comes and brings him word of the remarkable love of these Christians in Colossae, the love they have for each other. So, so in other words, Epaphras goes to Paul and he says that the love of these Christians in Colossae, was, it was newsworthy. It was noticeable because you don't see people's feelings. You see their actions. And what caused Paul to rejoice so much for these people was the fact that, that he, was, he was sure, as he sits in prison, he was sure that his evangelistic efforts in Colossae had been fruitful. That these people didn't just sit in the crowd and like what they heard about Jesus, but there were deep, authentic, permanent, transforming conversions in these people. And he knew that because he saw the love they had for each other. The love that issued from their experience of conversion. So Paul, Paul felt like, okay, this is the real deal. This is the real deal. This wasn't some surfacy emotional response to the gospel. This was the real deal. I suppose it has to be said that you have every reason to question your salvation if you allow yourself to sit in a perpetual state of ill will toward brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I don't know how you can avoid that conclusion if God's word is true. I know that's a strong statement, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't make it if I wasn't sure that that's, that's not Don Horbin speaking. You don't have to listen to me. I wouldn't make that statement if I couldn't see it stated so clearly in God's word. Let me give you just a few examples. Here's two texts, and I'll do two more. Whoever says he is in the light, that's, that's John's expression for a Christian, conversion. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is, is still in darkness. Notice, in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his... So he's dealing with Christians here, obviously. Whoever hates his brother is is in the darkness, so you're in it, and you walk in it, walks in darkness. He, he does not know where he is going because the darkness has, has blinded his eyes. So there's a guy who says, love brother and sister so-and-so, but he carries bitterness and hatred towards somebody else. Maybe he was mistreated, somebody said something, somebody did something, and he won't let it go. John says, then stop calling yourself a Christian. Kind of an ouch text, isn't it? A little bit. Look what he says in 1 John 3.10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. And look at this. Who are the children of the devil? Yikes. Children of the devil can sit in church services. Did you know that? They can sing worship courses with their hands raised and their eyes closed. 
whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's go here. We know that we have passed out of death into life. That, that's conversion. Because we love the brothers. Loving the brothers isn't what saved anybody, but it is the fruit of conversion. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a, wow, murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hate your brother, don't talk about eternal life. It's, it's not in you. Can you see that I, that's not just me? Do you see it in those texts? Like, I'm not making it up, am I? Here's the last one. If anyone says, I love God, boy, we say that quite a bit, don't we? I love you, Lord. And, and does this. Then he's one of those. You see it? He who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has, has not seen. Okay, so all of those passages, there could be more, but four is enough. They, they talk about a, a professed relationship with God, and then they, they contrast that profession with reality. He's not comparing. You compare things that are similar. He's contrasting things that are totally opposite. So in each of those verses, there's a person. There's a person who, who thinks... He's a Christian. This is, this is, this is how he self-identifies. He professes to be part of the brethren. That word brother is used by John in each of those verses. But if I, I hate my brother, and usually, by the way, I'll almost always deny that. But if I hate my brother, then I'm not a part of the brethren. I'm, I'm deceiving myself. I'm, I'm, I'm living a lie. So this person claims to love God, 1 John 4.20. But, but, he, but he really doesn't. He, he might believe he loves God. He might think he loves God. But John says he doesn't. I mean, that, that in fact, what I just said is, is, is a lot lighter than what John says. John says that he, he can't love God. 4.20. 4, 1 John 4.20. He cannot love God. Love for God is, is a spiritual impossibility for that kind of heart. Okay, so, so I learn that love for God isn't just something I have power to turn on and off. I, I may be able to work up some feelings, some emotional state, perhaps with tears, and, and that can make me imagine that I love God. But, says the Apostle John, if, if I hate my brother, I, I simply do not have the capacity to love God. He, he says you're blind. You can't see where you're going. You're in the dark. That's what he says. I just, I just want to remind myself that John would come to, John would come to all of us. I mean, imagine a person. Imagine a person who, who, who isn't, who, it, it's not through lack of effort. He's attending church. He's singing. He's 
praying. Maybe he's teaching. Maybe he preaches. Maybe he's worshiping. He's trying somehow to strike up a feeling of devotion and passion for God. We do it a lot during worship times. He knows he should love God. He wants to love God. But somehow, no matter how hard he tries, no matter how many altars he visits, no matter how hard he weeps, God just seems removed. He seems distant. And he can't make himself spiritually warm inside. And John would come to all of us who might feel that way today and he'd say, let me help you. Look to your relationship with others who are in Christ. John would say, let let me help you. This is where many people poke their spiritual eyes out. This this is the one sin we can most easily justify. And so all of that to say, no wonder Paul was pleased with this church. That's what I'm getting at. No wonder he he lifts his voice to God, so he says, in praise, in praise for the evidence of a deep, effective, genuine work of grace that was so powerfully demonstrated in their midst. Their love wasn't pretend and it wasn't secret. It was expressed. It was demonstrated. Everybody could see it. Paul says, that's the real deal. That's point number one. Number two, the love demonstrated by the church at Colossae wasn't a product of natural human effort. I want want to tell you where I get that conclusion. It's in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Colossians 1, 7 and 8. He says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us, and then this phrase, your love in the Spirit. What's that mean? Your love in the Spirit. Or maybe say it another way. This is a love that came from they're being linked together in the Holy Spirit. Or maybe better still, this love was birthed and carried along by the Holy Spirit working in them. That to me seems obvious from what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. We always, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and, and the love that you have for all the saints. Now, here's the way I read that. If this love had just been sort of a, a character trait, worked up, a product of the Colossian believers themselves, something they just did, then Paul would have thanked them for their love. But, but that isn't what he does. Since the love is a product of the Spirit at work in them, he says he thanks God for their love. Isn't that weird? He's not thanking them for their love. He's thanking God for their love, as though somehow God produced this. There's something different going on in their hearts, and it's a product of the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul He doesn't really merely thank God just as some kind of 
exclamation point. Oh, thank God you made it home in that storm. And, and we don't really mean God at all. No, I, I think Paul literally turns his thanksgiving in God's direction because he recognizes that God is the source of the love they were manifesting. So just as the joy that we looked at last week, it wasn't produced or maintained merely by the exercise of human will and happy circumstances and an exciting environment. In the same way, this love is, is something that lies beyond our own self-manufacturing. It has some unique elements to it that go far beyond the kind of affection that can exist outside of Christ. Because people do love each other outside of Christ. I think we know that. This world is capable of, of pretty earnest love, sometimes at great sacrifice, apart from any relationship with Jesus at all. And so, what makes this love produced by the Holy Spirit any different? So, in other words, how is spiritual love different from natural love? I, I have a couple of thoughts that go through my mind. I mean, first, remember that whenever the Bible says something is spiritual, I, you shouldn't have to say this, but now in this day you do. Whenever the Bible says something is spiritual, it isn't using it kind of in an Oprah like uh, your inner wonderful self, uh, the glow of human potential, getting in touch with your, your, uh, your inner serenity or whatever. When the New Testament says something is spiritual, it means two things. Always. When the New Testament says something is spiritual, it means that whatever is being described is produced by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, it means that whatever is being described, it has the character of the Holy Spirit. It's produced by the Holy Spirit, and it has the character of the Holy Spirit. So this love this love in the Spirit. How is it different from natural love? Well, this love that Paul witnessed in the believers at Colossae, this love by the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is love dedicated to the glory of God. I said there was natural earthly love. Earthly love at its worst, can be exercised for attention and pride or possessiveness. That's at its worst. And at its best, earthly love is motivated just by human benevolence. That's what I think, that's what we mean when we talk about the milk of human kindness. And human kindness is a wonderful thing. It's part of God's common grace to this fallen planet, but it's, it's not the unique possession of Christians. Atheists can be very kind and very giving. Love prompted and given by the Holy Spirit has certain distinct qualities to it. First, it's rooted in faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for the saints. Secondly, like all truly spiritual actions, its primary motive is the glory of God. So it is concerned about human need. 
and the meeting of human need. But even those concerns, they're the fruit of something else. The dominating motive is that God will receive glory in the obedience and in the sacrifice of his children. Look at Matthew 5.16. You know these words. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Okay, stop right there. Those words ought to strike us as being really weird. Because if you've read Jesus talking about people, people who do things with a desire to be seen, is it usually a positive comment that he's making? When he talks about the Pharisees and and how they love to stand on the street corners and do their prayers to be seen by men, or people that put in big offerings, but they do it to be seen by men. Whenever Jesus talks about doing something to be seen by somebody else, he almost always shreds it up. But look what he's doing here. In the same way, let your light shine. Let it shine before others so that they may see your good works. What's the difference here? Give glory to your Father in heaven. So they see you, but when the Holy Spirit is producing something and you're doing it for the glory of God, they see that it's not about you. There's a, there's a flavor to it. It it's kind of looks like the way Jesus would do things. The problem here is that sinful people, sinful people do not normally do anything primarily for the glory of God. They might do it to try to get to heaven. That's not the same thing. They don't do it primarily for the glory of God. We can't work that motive up in our hearts. And and that's why it takes the inward renewing work of the Holy Spirit to produce that love, the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. I got to hurry. Point number three. For you guys up there, I left some stuff out. I'm jumping to point number three. Spiritual love is a fruit growing out of the root of biblical hope. I get this primarily in verses four and five. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have, the love that you have for all the saints, because of, there's the reason, Because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. It's just as clear as it can be there. I see the love, and I know that the reason the love is there is because of the hope that you have. So verse 5 explains verse 4. I mean, verse 5 gives the reason for verse 4. That's what that because means. The reason they have such love for all the saints is they were just vice-gripped. By the hope that they had before them. There's only one thing that will satisfy the person who has his or her hope set on heaven. A person who hopes for heaven will be doing the works of heaven. I've always liked this quote. It's from John Piper. Let me just read it to you. It is not the cords of heaven that bind the hands of love. It is the cords of leisure 
of pleasure, of money, of comfort, and human praise. And the only power to sever these cords is a strong Christian hope. Find me the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the promised glory of heaven that he feels like an exile and a sojourner here on earth. Find me the person who has so tasted the beauty of the age to come that the diamonds of this world look like baubles, that the entertainment of this world has become empty and trite. Oh, God, raise up people like that. And the moral causes of the world are too small because they have no view of eternity in them. Find me that person, and I'll show you a person free to love as Christ loves. We could just say amen and go home. But we're not. Here's what I want to do as we wrap up. So there's the theory. The theory is people who have a rugged, solid hope in Christ. It doesn't make them of no earthly good. It frees them in, to love in a way that nothing else can. Okay, that's, that's the theory. Now I want to I say, does this work? Can we see this happening anywhere? So that, that's where we're going as we wrap up. Hebrews chapter 10, 32 to 34. If you have your Bibles, this is a great text to look up. Like they're all pretty good. Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. I can't, no, I can't do all the background stuff. Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. Recall the former days when, so after you were enlightened, these are Christians, they were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, persecution. Sometimes being exposed, look at this, exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He says, for, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully, remember last week, last week the fruit of hope is what? Joy, yeah. You joyfully, only it doesn't seem to fit here, you accepted the plundering of your property why? Why did they do why did they do this? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So here's the situation. Some of the Christians had been hauled off and put in prison. As hard as it was for them, it also caused a real moral dilemma for those who were still in the church and who were free. They faced a choice. They could go underground and save themselves from plundering of their property and arrest and persecute. They could go underground or they could go and show love to their brothers in prison, but then they'd be risking life and possessions, okay? So that's the situation. What did they do? Well, they went and visited those who were taken off to prison already. That's a no-brainer. The real issue is, why did they do it? What fueled their love, right? What fueled their love? Verse 34 tells us what they did. But way more important, it also tells us why. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And here's the why. You knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
Now, as clear as a bell, do you see how their hope produced this radical love? It's as clear as it can be. Let me give you one more example. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Okay, so that's what he did. Why did he do it? 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Same thing. Moses says, there's this hope I have before me. He probably wouldn't have had it in quite the same way you and I have that hope. But there's, there's, there's the promise of God that he has before him. And he says, that trumps being raised in wealth and luxury. I'd rather have mistreatment with my people. And the love came from his hope. He was looking to the reward. So the very thing the critics would say numbs the life out of loving action in this world, the New Testament says is precisely the source of loving action in this world. Biblical hope changes values. When you got saved, did your hopes get converted? Moses' hope put him out of step with the world around him. I mean, who in his right mind chooses ill treatment over riches, comfort, power, fame? Where, where does the power come from? To love a bunch of grumbling whiners in the wilderness and eat dust as you wander through the desert your whole adult life. That only comes from one source. You, you have to have your eyes set on a different country and a different reward. So where does that leave us? Do we just go home thinking, gee, I sure hope God makes me like that. Is there anything we can do to increase the power of hope for eternity and love for those around us? I think there are two verses that might help us to find the way home here. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, and we're wrapping up. If you then have been raised with Christ, what's that talking about? That's your conversion. Here's the verb. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If, if I read that right, heavenly realities don't, they are of grace, but they don't just come to you. You, you go after them. I mean, that's, that's what that word seek means. And, and the key is both the positive and the negative sides of that verse 
they have to be obeyed. I have to consciously and prayerfully shift my affections off the things of this earth, place them on the hope of heaven. So through the new birth, through faith in Jesus Christ, my heart has been, he says, raised with Christ, verse 1. The Spirit has joined me. And that means that I have this capacity now to cooperate with the Spirit that wasn't there before I was born again. Eyes of my heart have been opened up. I can, I can start to see things. And I'm called to this willing involvement in the movement, in the transferring of my affections and my ambitions. I seek those things that are above. I diet my life around the things that inspire hope because hope will fuel joy and love. I can't make the wind blow put up the sail. Everyone said, let's pray.